Welcome to the, it's actually the third Prayer Book School session of 2008, first being in New York in January, the second being last week here in Charlottesville, of nine, I think, so we can get finished. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sumner Stone to speak to us tonight. Uh, you have his title in front of you, you have the speaker in front of you. Welcome. Thank you, Terry. Um, I'd like to thank particularly Ryan Roth, who um, is responsible for cajoling me out here to Virginia. And um, uh, it's a rare opportunity to speak to such a group. Um, uh, although I have done a lot of speaking recently, um, mostly it's to um, undergraduate design students. And uh, I look forward to uh, I, I'm making a lot of assumptions about my audience in this talk. So. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And I want also to um, thank Terry for uh, designing the um, historically interesting and amusing poster <laughs> for my talk. Um, <clears throat> I might say just a few words about my background. I um, <clears throat> was introduced to the world of letter forms by studying calligraphy with Lloyd Reynolds at Reed College. Um, and I then uh, had on-the-job training as a lettering artist at Hallmark Cards in Kansas City, where I worked for two years. Uh, that was when I really first encountered the uh, craft of type design, and the main reason that I went to Kansas City and worked for Hallmark Cards was because they had hired Herman Saf as a consultant, and I was under the impression that um, if you went, then you would get to hang out with Herman, which was true. And not only did he help the lettering artists, um, he, he was uh, extremely um, generous in uh, spending time with us and daily teaching and so on. It was very worthwhile. Um, so um, after that, I um, spent some time teaching calligraphy and got a degree in a graduate degree in mathematics and wound up in the business of designing and manufacturing and marketing, I might add, um, digital type. So this lecture is, um, is a personal view of uh, the early history. Uh, the early history does not go back to punch cards in this case, but really in my case, starts right at the transition between uh, <clears throat> when people used uh, what we called bitmap fonts, which were simply grids of on and off pixels, to um, <clears throat> outline representations. Which was just before 
typography began on the personal computer. <clears throat> the forms of visual language are woven from many threads. Traditionally, the tools and materials used in making these forms have been an intimate part of their structure. And this is true for digital typography as well. But it is also true that the forms of digital type are now generally represented by mathematically described outlines. And of course, ultimately, by a sequence of zeros and ones. These outline representations were christened device-independent by Adobe Systems in the mid-1980s. The forms exist in an abstract space which seems quite separate from their physical instantiations. Conceptual structures for letter forms have a history. The formal structure of stroke-based written characters known as a ductus, is often decipherable from the forms themselves. And in 16th century Europe, the order and direction of strokes are explicitly spelled out by writing masters in their manuals. Such systems have another conceptual level, which has both functional and aesthetic components, namely visual integration. The tendency toward visual integration is a common theme in writing systems. It is evident in the development of Sumerian cuneiform over its lifespan of more than 3,000 years and in the evolution of cursive writing in Egypt. <clears throat> Indeed, it is the basis of the entire lineage of stroke-based scripts which lead to the Roman alphabet. The repertoire of strokes and their composition seems to magically result in a visually integrated system. But the system itself is the result of a design process which necessarily must involve both conceptual thinking and craft. It is also inevitably part of an even more complex structure, a writing pedagogy. Typefaces are another matter. The structure of calligraphic forms which have been translated into type is frequently possible to understand if the typographic versions are an attempt to faithfully render the written ones. For better or for worse, the early Roman types did not strictly follow this practice and neither have their progeny. The internal structures of Roman type designs can therefore be considerably more difficult to comprehend than their written predecessors. The visual integration that is achieved in Roman type design is the result of an individual's ability to make a coherent fabric from a complex collection of fibers. The system, if there is one, is private. Unlike formal writing, a type design is not expected to be part of a tradition which carries with it instructions for its reproduction. There are a few first-hand accounts by type designers about what they were up to. To quote Harry Carter, in the darkness, the darkness 
of typographical history. Even a feeble light such as that shed by the reminiscences of Nicholas Kish is a great help. Those of you who are studying typographic history, I'm sure you can appreciate that, that sentiment. There are passages from the manuals of Pierre-Simon Fournier and Jean-Baptiste Bononi which cast light on the concepts which influ influence the graphic structure of their letter forms. Frequently, however, the underlying structure of typographic letter forms is undocumented. One must attempt to infer the mental patterns of type designers from the letters they designed and, possibly, from what we can discover about their historical and cultural context. Many attempts have been made to concoct geometric constructions for Roman capital letter forms. One of the appealing things about these schemes is that they offer an explicit systematic set of procedures for arriving at the forms. Unfortunately, none of these has produced letters that are credible copies of the most refined imperial Roman inscriptions. Another approach has been to make measurements of letters and letter parts in Roman inscriptions in order to use the resulting proportions as guides for students <clears throat> in learning to make the Roman capital letter. Yet another use of geometry is invoked by Edward Johnston for what he calls essential forms in his writing and illuminating and lettering. The essential forms are skeletons on which one can build more complex letters. As I became a calligrapher and a letterer, I found his concept had great intuitive appeal. When I had finished my master's degree in mathematics and started learning computer programming, I began a project based on Johnston, I, Johnston's idea of essential forms. I wrote software that would generate letter shapes using weighting systems determined by an algorithm. I thought that old-style, transitional, modern, and sans-serif styles could be produced from essential or skeleton forms using a simple set of operations which could be formed, performed by a computer. One could then make variations on these weighting schemes by changing the values of a small number of parameters. Some initial results appeared in the publication Fine Print in 1979. In 1984, I was offered a position as the director of typography at Adobe Systems. <clears throat> the letter form landscape had something in common with that of Assyria in the 8th century BCE, Rome of the 1st century BCE, and Italy in the late 15th century. Parallel formal mainstream scripts. We still have the legacy of the Roman letter from the Renaissance. It now connotes traditional Western culture. It plays a diminishing role in our typography. The sans serif letter form of the industrial age is in the ascendant. By 1984, Helvetica, a sans serif, was chosen to be one of the three resident typefaces on the Apple Laser Writer printer. <clears throat> the other two were Times Roman and Courier. I'm sure that these choices seemed natural and, in fact, inevitable 
to those who made them. They were the best sellers in the categories sans serif, serif, and typewriter. Shortly after I arrived at Adobe, I began work on the Stone family, which would become Adobe's first original typeface family. (coughs) There were serif, sans serif, and informal versions. These typefaces were intended to belong to the same categories as Times, Helvetica, and Courier. But unlike these three, they were designed as a piece and they were intended to be useful as companion faces. The Stone clan with its three families was to be united by a single underlying structure. The idea of making compatible versions of historically disparate scripts was certainly not new. For example, the Renaissance system of typography was the result of the integration of Roman inscriptional capitals with the formal upright version of the humanistic minuscule. Shortly thereafter, the collection of companion scripts was expanded to include the cursive humanistic minuscule and a sloped version of retrofitted Roman capitals. The modification of scripts for the purpose of making them, making them look compatible when used together is a practice that goes back a long way in the Greco-Roman tradition. There are visually integrated letter forms in bilingual Greek and Latin inscriptions starting in the second century BCE. The threads I have described were part of the intellectual and visual stock I had on hand when I began to set up my loom for weaving the stone clam. But there were other bits of yarn as well. Donald Knuth's Metafont computer language was one. The primitives used by Metafont were abstract representations of the marks made by different writing tools. The computer language contained the idea that each character was in the each character in the font could be represented in an abstract form using parameters which applied to the whole font. By changing the parameters the design of the font could be changed. Metafont resonated with the idea for the software I had produced to add weight to skeleton forms. Adrian Frutiger's systematic approach to the design of universe had also made a distinct impression on me as had the conceptual basis for Hans Meyer's syntax, a sans-serif typeface designed using the underlying structure of Renaissance letter forms. The idea of an integrated family of companion designs beyond Roman and Italic in multiple weights had 20th century precedents dating from Jan van Krimpen's Romulus family designed in the 1920s. My concept for three integrated families was based not only on historical precedent and a fascination with the conceptual aspects of underlying structures, but also on an anticipation of the needs of both new and existing typographers. I intended this new family to address a very broad range of tasks, including correspondence, book publishing, and everything in between. I felt an expanded palette of harmonious styles would be useful 
for producing a large range of simple and complex documents consisting of both text and display typography. I believed they would offer graphic opportunities that were beyond the range of Times, Helvetica, and Courier. Drawings for a small number of lowercase serif letters were made first, and they were immediately followed by the same characters in the sans and informal versions. The design of the three families was carried out simultaneously, not sequentially. There was a good deal of looking and adjusting at the early stages to reach a common structure that would be suitable for all three. The forms were not based on any particular previous typeface. My own calligraphic and lettering experience was the basis, but there were identifiable influences. The serif type was influenced by Palatino, Hermannsdorf's Palatino, and George Trump's Trump Medieval. Both typefaces, which I admired, and whose robust structures I thought were good models to follow in the rough and tumble environment of device independence for which I was designing. The stroke endings of the sands were influenced by syntax and also Rudolf Koch's cobble. Developing a conceptual approach for the stone informal family was a challenging part of the project. The design of typewriter fonts was heavily influenced by technological constraints of the typewriter. Each character occupied the same width, including everything from the period to the capital W. The physics of whacking the little metal bars against a ribbon to make the imprint also had its parameters. <clears throat> the use of the typewriter had changed the style of letter forms used for business and per personal documents from cursive handwriting to typographic forms, albeit anemic monospaced ones. Courier was essentially monoline with serifs, and there was another very popular typeface called Letter Gothic that was a sans serif. I did not believe the typewriter styles would persist. I felt there was an opportunity to produce something new that could be used for the same functions and perhaps new ones as well. I did not consider something that was directly based on a handwritten script to be an appropriate model, but I did want to retain some of the visual connotations of the typewritten letter. Several characteristics seem appropriate. A low contrast between thick and thin parts, including heavy serifs, soft corners, cursive joins, and the use of the one-story lowercase a and g. I felt that making both Roman and Italic versions would ensure that the informal would be a full adult member of the clan. Of course, uh, email has taken over a great deal of business and personal correspondence, and the informal is, ironically, frequently used in magazines and books published for children. Another important consideration in, de in designing the entire stone clan was scale. The apparent size at which letter forms are going to be read is a significant factor in their design. When viewing distance is variable, as in inscriptions and public lettering in general, letter forms that are legible over a large range of apparent size are preferable. Aesthetics 
is also relevant. Letter forms which are leg legible at a distance but ugly close up are at a disadvantage. When the viewing distance is fixed, as it is for books, magazines, etc., the same is true for letters that are imaged at both small and large sizes. In making metal type, each size is produced separately, and before the invention of the pantograph, the punch-cutting process meant that size-specific design was built into the process. In making a pattern for use with the pantograph, a physical model is produced that can be used to make a range of type sizes. The same is true for the masters used in photo typesetting. Type which is designed specifically for use at 10 point may look rather ungainly at 72 point. And type that is designed for use at 72 point may be difficult to read at 10 point. Linotype made size-specific versions of fonts for the linecaster, and they offered some of these for sale in the early days of phototype setting. The 12-point versions sold, but those intended for display did not. Phototype setting was a technology which enabled a startup company called International Typeface Corporation. ITC started a design program to make what it called text and display typefaces. It would have been more accurate to call them display and text typefaces. <clears throat> they were appealing at large size and somewhat legible at text size. The background of the principles was advertising, not publishing. Serious book and publication designers generally disliked these designs because they were not real text typefaces. The ITC Garamond came in for particular criticism in this respect. It was quite clearly intended for advertising, not for setting books. I believe the outrage it precipitated was caused at least partially by the expectations created as a consequence of calling it Garamond a typeface renowned for its legibility. I was quite aware of this recent history when I began planning the stone typefaces. I thought it would be possible to make real text typefaces that could also be used for display. This view influenced my planning for the entire early typographic development program at Adobe. I also thought that display typefaces, which were not necessarily useful for text, were a legitimate category for us to pursue at Adobe. These views were validated by the enthusiastic reception for Adobe Garamond, Adobe Caslon, and the pre-typographic capitals-only trio of Lithos, Trajan, and Charlemagne. The so-called desktop publishing technology was in reality a new toolkit for book design, magazine design, newspaper design, signage design, advertising design, and indeed every form of graphic design. The stone type clan was also well received. It was used for books, magazines, and newspapers. <clears throat> Some of these were designed using the three families for all or almost all of the typography. The sans serif emerged as the most popular of the three. 
At first, I was somewhat surprised by this since I had considered the serif to be the primary uh, <clears throat> design in my thinking when I was creating the family. But I now regard the popularity of stone sands as being a byproduct of the continuing movement toward the dominance of the sans serif. Today, sans serifs strongly outsell traditional serif types on the bestseller lists of the major online font distributors. As a representative sample, the myfonts.com top 50 contains 22 sans serifs, 21 informal and formal scripts, and three traditional serif fonts. Digital outlines offer some important opportunities from a designer's point of view. One of these is the possibility to add information which has come to be called hints in order to control the shapes of the characters at low resolution. This is what made device independence a reality. Another possibility is interpolation between different versions of a typeface. Interpolation is a technique that is used in digital animation. Two drawings at different stages in the movement of an object or character can be interpolated to produce computer-generated intermediate drawings. The concept was introduced to type design by a company called URW in Hamburg, Germany, the same firm that had been responsible for the first digital outline representations. I used this technique to produce the semi-bold versions of the stone fonts. Adrian Frutiger told me once that he felt interpolation could produce very good results, in some cases better than he could draw himself. I became entranced by interpolation, and so did software developers at Adobe. It now appears in Adobe products as the blend tool. From the point of view of type design, it could produce not only intermediate weights, but also intermediate versions of wide and narrow characters, and intermediate versions of designs which were made for small and large sizes. One could even interpolate between serif and sans serif designs. Extrapolation could be used for producing a rough cut of a version outside the range bounded by the original designs, a practice pioneered by Matthew Carter in his design of the heavyweights of Galliard. I proposed to Adobe that we should devise a software and a font structure that would make interpolated and even extrapolated versions available to users. The structure was called Multiple Masters Fonts. Not my name. I thought these fonts could address a number. I, I called them, actually, um, I, I called the project when I before I left Adobe, the Mother Hubbard Project. <clears throat> that problem was not solved. I thought these fonts could address a number of different typographic issues. One of these arises when using what is known as reversed or dropped out type, light on dark instead of dark on light. In order to prevent letters or parts of letters from becoming too light or disappearing entirely, it is necessary for the type to be heavier than when it is printed dark on light. This could easily be solved using the multiple masters technology. 
Another prospect was for automatically generating versions of typefaces which would be properly designed for the size at which they were used. I thought that this might make the design of size-specific typefaces less expensive and that they could therefore be offered to customers at a price which might make them seem worth licensing. Yet another was the ability to generate a slightly expanded or condensed version of a typeface for copy fitting in a particular publication, both for headlines and for text. After selling the idea of multiple masters fonts internally at Adobe and beginning work with Carol Twombly and Robert Slimbach on Myriad, the first multiple master font family, I decided to start my own type foundry. Unfortunately, the user interfaces I had envisioned for the multiple masters fonts were never implemented, and using multiple masters fonts turned out to be too complex for all but the most sophisticated users. Tools for making multiple masters fonts, however, are included in the current uh, version of the Font Lab design and production software. And uh, from what I can see, um, uh, people use them quite often to make large families of type. Even though my association with Adobe ended, my fascination with interpolation and large type families did not. In the process of designing Stone Serif, I realized that the constraints imposed by the one-size-fits-all approach were considerable, particularly for making traditional serifed types. I wanted to make a serifed clan with both size-specific and variable-width versions. Fournier and Bodoni provided historical precedents. The received wisdom about the parameters for making different sizes was smaller means wider, heavier, less contrast, and larger X height. But I wanted to understand the subtleties of this very general description through making, an approach which seems to be deeply ingrained in my nature. The first opportunity to work on the project came along with print magazine's desire for a new text typeface. Even though print was run by editorial people, they felt strongly that it was very important to have as much room as possible for images. The project sounded like a good fit. Several strategies were used in the design of the print typeface. One was to try to minimize the widths of the characters that were most frequently used. Of course, this varies somewhat by language, but I thought the vowels would qualify regardless. Another was to try to capture space inside the characters without increasing their widths using whatever visual tricks I could think of. The lowercase h, m, n, and u have slightly rounded stems for this reason, and they have short internal serifs. The overall structure of the characters was concocted from my internal connection at this stage of my career to the collective typographic consciousness and thoughts about what kinds of structures might be flexible when I got to the stage of producing other versions. There was no specific prior model. Shortly after the print project started, another opportunity presented itself, a revival of the typefaces of Giambattista Badoni. 
Bodoni had produced a tremendous number of fonts with variation using parameters I was interested in, size, condensation, and to a much lesser extent, weight. I was hired by ITC, now quite a different company, to be the art director for the project. The design process ultimately was completed by four different designers, including myself. The project was originally intended to result in multiple master's fonts, which could be used to produce something like Bedoni's huge number of subtle variations. But during the course of the design project, which was delayed by various factors, including one of the designers having a baby, ITC correctly predicted that multiple master's fonts were not going to be successful, and the decision was made to produce only three different sizes, 6, 12, and 72 point. The 6 and 72 point were drawn and digitized, and the 12 point was an interpolation. I had insisted during the design process that we maintain the seemingly considerable variation in the individual sizes and that in the editing process, judgment should be made only by proofing at the actual sizes for which the typefaces had been designed. I wanted to preserve the handmade qualities of both the small and the large. This meant that the designs did not look like other 20th century revivals of Bodoni. One of the results of following this path was that when it came time to interpolate, the six and 72 point masters, there was some anxiety about what the offspring of such a pairing might be like. George Bernard Shaw and his story about having a child with a beautiful woman came to mind. He said to her something like, what if it has your brains and my looks? What if the Bodoni child inherited only the quirks of the small size and none of the beauty of the large? The designs for the sizes, each drawn by a different person, seem so dissimilar. Many lessons were learned from Bodoni. One was that interpolation is not as unpredictable as genetics. The 12 point did not have birth defects. It surprised everyone, even me, it was a Bodoni. Of course, it did not exactly match any of the fonts that Bodoni had actually cut, but it had the right gestures and the right posture and overall the look and feel of the original Bodoni types. The interpolated 12-point was a revelation. I thought it both platonic and Johnstonian. It appeared that Bodoni had a clear underlying structure in his mind. At this point, I understood that a good deal of seeming variation in the extreme versions could produce something quite coherent in the middle. This reaffirmed a growing feeling I had that devising a structure for an entire interpolated, interpolated family first and then drawing extreme versions had a tendency to produce homogenized designs. Energy and focus were dispersed over the whole family rather than concentrated in the individual styles. I resolved to continue making the extremes in my serif family the result of individually focused projects. 
integration into the clan would be a secondary process. <clears throat> this decision had an immediate effect. I drew a new design which was clearly influenced by working on the Bodoni. It was manifested in a redrawing of print with much greater contrast. I listened to Verdi and Puccini while I drew this post-Bodoni type. I wanted to have a strong individual character to have its own voice. I would have called it opera, but I found that Frutiger had used the name already. I called it Arepo. Meanwhile, the opportunity had presented itself for yet another addition to the Seraph clan, a new text typeface for a book. The book for which the type was intended was being designed by Jack Stoffiger, who had been one of the members of my type advisory board at Adobe. I knew him, I greatly admired his work, and I knew the book would provide a good test bed for the design. I thought the resulting typefaces would only be a beginning, but even so, I was confronted by many disappointments after viewing the type in the finished book. The italic was particularly troubling, and I realized in a moment of clarity that I would have to draw each individual size for the type separately. Thus began a phase of the project that would unfold over a period of 11 years. I would make amendments and additions to the type, including new sizes. Stoffiger and another collaborator, Chuck Byrne, would use them in their books. And then I would do another round of corrections and additions. I sometimes used interpolation or extrapolation as a tool, but the result was always rough cuttings, which were inevitably worked over. The type now has 5, 7, 9, 11, 18, 24, and 36-point versions. I regard Arepo to be the 72-point version. A special edition of the fonts, which includes other sizes, was made for Alvin Eisenman, another member of the Adobe Type Advisory Board, for use in his redesign of Daedalus, the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 1998, I was asked to design a new logotype for the San Francisco Public Library. I suggested that the commission should include a, a type design, and they agreed. The resulting typeface is called SFPL, and it is a design which is intermediate in width between print and cycles. It is a very conscious attempt to once again make a text and display type. <clears throat> While I was preparing this lecture, I wondered if there is any other library which has its own typeface. I have a feeling someone in this crowd probably knows that. The Print Cycles Arepo SFPL clan has now had versions designed in at least three dimensions, weight, condensation, and size, but it has not been interpolated in a three-dimensional grid. Uh, I, I am no longer sure that, the, that this approach would be worth the effort. Um, and other things have intervened. We, we shall see. Now I would like to talk about the most recent clan. This one is connected also with a library. It began with a type called basalt, 
first used for signage in Stanford's Green Library after it was rebuilt due to the damage caused by the 1989 earthquake. Basalt has capitals only in two widths, normal and somewhat condensed. Both are contained in a single font. A large family called magma was developed from basalt. I knew the critical step was drawing the text weight lowercase characters. I did this in pencil on single sheets of drafting film. I erased and redrew parts of characters, but my discipline was to only draw each character once, even though each one took a long time to draw. The conceptual structure of the design has some similarity to Universe and Frutiger and that there is a matrix of weights and condensations. Magma, however, is not a grotesque, and it has a real italic. Like syntax, it is based on an underlying structure akin to that of the humanistic script and early Roman type. Its strokes are slightly flared. The increments between the weights are rather small, One consequence of this is that the next heavier weight can be used when type is being reversed. This was done in order to give the typography some of the functionality that was offered by the multiple master's fonts, but in a simplified form. There have also been unforeseen benefits in expert typographers being able to create pages in which a skillful use of the weight used for each size uh, can produce uh, a very harmonious page. There is a companion sans-serif Unchel family called Monk, which has the same heights, weights, etc. The two families can be mixed together on a character-by-character basis. The Monk family represents an integration of disparate historical styles through the use of essential forms, The design problem in creating an Unchel typeface has similarities to creating so-called superfamilies, which include non-Latin scripts such as Greek or Cyrillic. There are two recent additions to this clan. One is magma thin titling, a typeface which is probably as close as I have come to drawing essential forms. It has capitals and small capitals. The other is a typeface called Numa. Also a thin weight. The forms of Numa are derived from both the letters and the spirit of the very few extant examples which contain Roman archaic forms. In the early period of the Roman monoline letter, many of the forms were in flux. The writing line does not seem to have had either a floor or a ceiling. Letter heights and alignments vary. Sometimes letters lean back and forth in a dance. The crossbar of the A is found in at least three different positions. The O sometimes appears with a gap at the bottom. M sometimes has five strokes. Some of the variations are from Greek forms, which also went through a a period of variation. But some seem to be strictly 
Roman experiments. I believe there are insights to be gained from examining these letters, um, and it is one of my current fascinations, but this project is still at an early stage. The typeface uh, was one of those events in which I decided on a Monday morning to do it, and by the end of the week it was done. (laughs) I don't know where it came from. Some, some passing views. So I'm going to end my, my tapestry here. There are many things which I have had to omit from this short talk, but I hope it has provided, as advertised, at least a glimpse of the warp and the roof. Thank you.